0: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez, and as the director of Rare Book School here at the University of Virginia, I have the privilege of welcoming you and of introducing our speaker for this evening. But before I do that, I'd like to thank the Fralin and the East Asian Center for their help in helping (laughs) to uh, make it possible for Beth McKillop to come here and be among us this week. Like tonight's moon, which, the likes of which won't be seen again for another 69 years, that's the rest of most of our lifetimes, but not everybody in the audience, I hope, um, Beth McKillop is a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon, too. If ever there was a dynamo who could get things done, that person goes by the name of Beth McKillop. She has degrees or professional certificates from five different institutions of higher learning. From 1981 to 1990 at the British Library, she was the curator for Chinese collections, adding responsibility for Korean collections in 1983. In other words, just two years into her job, she took on a whole new field. Then, from 1990 to 1993, she was seconded from the British Library to the Victorian Albert Museum to create London's first gallery of Korean art. This included, and I don't feel sorry for her one little bit, trips to Korea in order to acquire contemporary Korean art for the museum, to forge connections and to secure sponsorship. Something that she did so well. For those of you who don't know, it's sponsored by the Korean government and by Samsung. The VA's Korean Gallery was the last addition to the VA's museum galleries, to their Asian galleries. Its collection spans the Three Kingdoms period to the present day. And under Beth's leadership, it recently acquired some modern and contemporary Korean artworks that from the Korean newspapers of this year. Between 1993 and 2004 she returned back to the British Library as curator of Chinese and Korean collections where in addition to all her usual duties she was most regrettably I might add in my view the manager of all the departmental planning for the gigantic move of the British Library from Bloomsbury to St Pancras. Imagine moving the largest library in the world because that's what happened and all the Asian materials made that migration across the city under Beth's supervision. Uh, Edwin Rommel would have been envious, I think. What an astonishing thing. Uh, between uh, In 2004, the v brought her back again across town, this time as Keeper of Asia. What a great title, to be the Keeper of Asia and the Director of Collections, a post that she held until 2010. In this capacity, she led a team of 15 curators responsible for collections and galleries relating to the arts of India, the Islamic Middle East, China, Japan, and of course, Korea. She opened up the Jamil Gallery in 2006, and its success led to a touring collection of exhibitions on Islamic art, that's been going strong ever since. She was able to secure funding for externally funded posts um, in the Iranian and in the Korean collections. She secured (laughs) a deep relationship with the Nehru Trust and um, moved things around very successfully for educational purposes as part of the World Collections Program. China Design Now, in 2008 at the V&A, was Europe's first comprehensive study of Chinese architecture, fashion, and graphics in the Reform era. No wonder then that in 2010 she was made the Deputy Director as well as the Director of Collections at the Victoria and Albert Museum. As Deputy Director, she was in charge of seven collections departments, as well as research, as well as conservation departments, and she had senior responsibility for both national and international institutional strategy. She supervised more than 200 staff, with a combined salary exceeding £8 million per annum. And she was in charge of the quality of the museum experience for 3.7 million visitors annually. What an astonishing thing. Now, in addition, in addition to co-authoring a book on Korean ceramics, Beth is highly involved in trustee work. As for Asia House, the Mumbam Educational Trust, and the Percival David Foundation, of Chinese art. The bibliography of her publications and exhibitions runs to five pages in ten-point type. Just how she does it all and does it with such sprecatura and grace, I have no idea. But it's my tremendous pleasure and privilege to introduce you to tonight's speaker, Beth McKill.
1: Thank you Michael for these excessively kind words and I need not say I'm sure that the achievements are always those of a team and that it's my great pleasure to be at the Rare Book School and uh, in fact to meet Michael for the first time having contributed to the Oxford Companion and having had the pleasure of feeling part of a global uh, inquiry into the history of the book. I'm particularly pleased also to see my friend and colleague Dorothy Wong in the audience here tonight, and uh, to welcome Dorothy's students in the audience, and to say a big hello to all the Rare Book community who've welcomed me so very warmly. Thank you very much for allowing me to join you in Virginia, and for listening to a few thoughts about the history of the book in a distant land. Um, Before I go further, I should put my watch down because I need to keep an eye on time as we go forward and leave plenty of opportunities for some questions at the end. You see on the screen in front of you a map of the Korean peninsula, a historic map which of course doesn't offer an accurate outline of the long north-south trajectory of the Korean landmass. But it's a map which perhaps gives you some small hint of the people about whom we're going to talk today. People for whom books were of immense importance. People whose abilities in producing books, in making paper, in 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 uh, printing, in different man- manners, and in collecting and studying books, uh, were admired by their neighbours and whose achievements are truly remarkable. This map, um, and you can see the city of Seoul at its center, as well as Chedu Island in the south, and the great um, white mountain at the north on the boundary of China. Um, the, uh, the, the Yellow Sea here to the west, and the East Sea to the, to, to the east. Um, this map, reflects this diligent, hard-working Korean ethic with its uh, manuscript notes all around it, uh, helping the officials who used it to know what to expect when they went on their rounds and found uh, different parts of the country with different populations, products, and so forth. Maps and map making are a big part of printing in Korea, and this particular uh, sheet comes from the great Kim chong ho who was a practical mapmaker, a topographer who walked the country and recorded what he saw and made a monumentally enormous sheet map of the country. Here again you see the city of Seoul, the capital, with its east-west trajectory in the centre and it's one of the many uh, incredible products of Korean bookmaking. But today, before I turn to talk about Buddhism and Confucianism, the subjects that I've promised for this lecture, I want to take a few moments to introduce you to what Korean books look like. They look very different to books that we are used to in our everyday life. And I'm going to uh, begin uh, by showing you a book which is in the collection of the Wellcome Library in London. It's a book about medicine, it's a very unexciting and uh, uh, very uh, mainstream, uh, practical, useful book that one would find in a library in a non-elite household in Korea. This book uh, has an oiled paper cover. So you can see this thick Korean paper, uh, dyed this kind of musty yellow color and impressed. It's a thread-bound book. Korean books are very different from Western books in that they open in the opposite direction to what we're all used to. They come down this side, and they have sewing holes here. Here's uh, Here's the next. Uh, Here's the next side of this book, it's back cover, and here is its uh, first page. Koreans were thrifty, austere people who looked carefully at use of materials, so they reused scrap paper to thicken and to protect the outsides of their books, and they weren't particularly precious about the appearance of their books. Once you actually get into the text block of a book, you feel very far away from Western book styles. Um, We're here with many students from the rare books community who are giving deep attention to pages printed by Western presses. Well, the way of producing books in East Asia was very different. And before all else, one had wood blocks and these woodblocks, um, like this, like this, we make an impression on the paper, and it's through the study of these woodblocks and measuring their size and their features that bibliographers uh, study the book in Korea. So here is our, fr- our first page, a first page on the left, and a last page on the right. We're reading this book from right to left. You'll notice that the pages are folded down this side. So each page is printed only on one side of the paper. Again, very different from Western books. Easy in this technology to create create illustrations. What we're looking at here is a book of of medicine, of practical instructions and reference for doctors. So if you want to take a few lines out to create an illustration, pretty easy to do so, just by carving the block a bit bit differently. The book is also different from many Western books in that its soft covers give it a pliability and flexibility which... uh, made an enormous difference to the availability of books in pre-modern Korea. Western books were often protected by heavy, thick covers. They weighed a lot. Before the dissemination of paper in Western countries, the medium for printing was animal skin, which was expensive, thick, and unwieldy. The availability of paper in Korea and in China was an enormous uh, spur to the, uh, the spread of literacy and of practical books around the country. So you see in a book like this a very uh, heavily used, heavily found, um, rather roughly treated work, and you see how very easily malleable and wrapped up its pages are. The Korean Korean book page, again, has great flexibility in its layout and typography. You can see here uh, rows of text coming down in normal size, and then you can see annotations um, in in, in half size. You can see the page number, and you can see the running title coming down the side of the paper. When we describe Korean books, we also look carefully at the sides, uh, the edges of the wood block which have been used to print them. If it has one or two borders, if these borders are uh, the same or one thick one, or one thin one. All of these features help us to study, describe, and compare the different editions of books which circulated. Um, an important uh, part of Korean book design is this rather charmingly named fishtail this little device here which helped the printers folding the paper to catch exactly the right uh, the right line all the way down and these fishtails were des- designed in different ways sometimes uh, in talu, and sometimes the other way around sometimes with three rice uh, with three little rice grains here, or sometimes with four. So again, we look at these and we describe them and can distinguish between different editions uh, in that way. Here's a few more illustrations just to show you some more uh, ways in which this woodblock is so widely used. And you'll notice also the particular features of Korean books with this, with their large upper margins and rather smaller lower margins. This is different from Chinese and Japanese books, and for anybody who looks after an East Asian collection and is sometimes wondering which of the three countries the books come from, that's a, a quick, uh, quick indication of which way it might be. This book, by the, by the way, is about uh, 25, 26 centimetres tall. Um, yeah, Let me, me see more of that then. Margin Margin annotation, found quite frequently in Korean books, as in all as in others, handily available. Um, sorry, we're in the wrong direction there. And this sense of the narrowness and the lightness of the book is something which, I think, strikes anybody who's been more familiar with a different book tradition in their past. So, let me just find my place. Um, the woodblock is the most common way of producing books in Korea and uh, this particular example has been helpfully painted in white, I don't quite know why or who, who by but uh, this woodblock is in the British Library's collection and allows us to see the mirror the carved text um, upon its surface and the text is a literary work from the 15th century by a gentleman called Pak San Chung. And here you can see uh, where the text has been uh, printed onto, onto paper, minus the margins. And it looks extremely uncomfortable and unfinished without its margins. So here's the woodblock. You can see the fish tail in the center. You can see the double borders. You can see the running title down the centre, and then you can see the printed version. But not all books in Korea were produced with uh, wood blocks, and Korea's uh, eminence and uh, distinction in publishing and printing cultures really comes from the extraordinary development of movable type printing at a period quite some time before such technology was used in Europe. Um, The Koreans needed books for various purposes. They became Buddhist during the first millennium, round about the fifth or sixth century AD. And as is so common in relig- religious transmission, uh, change of belief pattern stimulated and encouraged printing to carry the messages of a new religious tradition to people with whom, <coughs> to are people who were not familiar with it. These Buddhist texts, on the whole, were produced between about 6 or 700 AD through to the 14th or 15th century, mainly using carved wood blocks. But at times, Koreans found it uh, more useful or more practical to cast bronze types and to make books using these cast types. And here you see um, some examples of these uh, cast types, and they were laid out in trays, just like, just to look like the characters on, the, on a on a printed woodblock. Everything I've shown you until now has been not in the Korean language but in the Chinese language. And I'd like to say a few words about those two languages. Korean is totally different from Chinese. It's grammatically different, syntactically different, and it's a reflection of China's potency as a cultural centre that so much printing in Korea in pre-modern times was done in the Chinese language. The educated elite in Korea studied Chinese pretty much as the educated elite in Europe studied uh, Greek and Latin. And Chinese was the language of uh, of the, the upper class and of scholarship. But during the 15th century, a new alphabet was artificially devised and published and many books were produced thereafter using this new set of letter forms, which nowadays we call uh, Hangul. H-A-N-G-U-L. Thus, we've got a book tradition which uh, uses carved wood blocks, it uses uh, metal type, it uh, takes advantage of a long-standing papermaking tradition uh, based upon primarily the uh, bark of the paper mulberry tree, but also using many other paper, paper sources including rags, uh, rice kernels and straw. Um, so here's the paper making and here's the paper out to dry. And we end up with a large book producing enterprise spread across the country in different places, uh, both in temples which needed to uh, use holy text, Buddhist scriptures, and also a court, where the kings of Korea required uh, particularly Confucian texts for their for their court courtiers and their officials to uh, model themselves on the sagely ways of ancient China. So Korea was a country that always had a thirst for knowledge, and the the modern Koreans um, who made this uh, kind of diorama of printers at work. Uh, revere their country's past and are proud of the printing traditions that it it reflects. I'm now going to break off from these generalities and go through some uh, particular landmarks and some particular high points in Korean print history. This is a picture of a very Important temple in the southern Korean city of Gyeongju. Down in the far south of the country, there was a kingdom called Shilla, S I L L A, and in that, uh, in that kingdom, a uh, Buddhist temple called the Buddha Land Temple, Pungguk was Buddha Land, was built in the 8th century. And inside that temple, there is a pagoda. That pagoda stood for many hundreds of years until in the 1960s it was uh, opened and inside it was found a Buddhist reliquary. And in that Buddhist reliquary, which included jewels, bottles, and the supposed uh, remains of Buddhist saints, inside that was a tiny little printed sutra, and I have a facsimile of that sutra, which I'd be happy to show you uh, later on. It's tiny, it's only about three three centimetres across, and it's a set of the text that you see there, and a reconstruction of the block from which it was printed, uh, is a set of incantations seeking the blessings of the Buddha upon the people. So by that time, by the mid-8th century, and we know when this temple was built, Uh, the Koreans were capable of producing uh, a lengthy text uh, and of carving a woodblock to make it and of making the necessary ink and making the necessary paper. And of course it's in scroll form which was the precursor of the folded page book that we saw earlier on. The next major uh, landmark I want to draw to your attention is this extraordinary uh, book which was published in the 14th century, in 1377 to be precise, and it is produced using metal-movable type. And we know that because Colophon tells us so, and this book uh, is the world's earliest dated book printed using metal types. Gutenberg is mid-15th century, this is late-14th century. But this is not the earliest Korean movable type. We know from literary evidence that in the 13th century there were other books printed using metal movable type. And again we know this because of the practice in books of including a colophon which gives a few notes about why the book was published who edited it, what they thought when doing so, and in many cases, uh, on whose behalf the book was published. It might have been published to uh, help the soul of a departed parent, so to ask for the blessing of the Buddha upon oneself. So very often, these texts have a few helpful lines that give us some detail about their printing history. This book is particularly interesting because it highlights... Um, modern Korean nationalism around their print history. It's, a, it's the book is one volume of two. Uh, it's familiarly known in Northern Korea as Jiji, but actually the text is a Buddhist. It's a Buddhist text, a Buddhist sermon, and it's in the collection of the French National Library in Paris because it was collected by a French diplomat in the late 19th century, and then lost from view for quite a long time until rediscovered in the late 20th century, at which point uh, the Korean population became very interested in it and rather keen that it should be sent back to Korea from Paris, something which has not happened. Uh, So that's a great landmark in world printing, the first piece of literature, the first substantial work to be uh, reliably dated, that was published using metal movable types. But I think equally remarkable and equally memorable in world printing (coughs) history is the so-called Tripitaka of 80,000. In Korean they call it Palman Gyeong, and in English we say Tripitaka of 80,000. That is the Buddhist scriptures contained on 80,000 woodblocks. And these 80,000 woodblocks are housed in this remarkable uh, temple complex at the temple called Heinsa um, in southern Korea on Mount Kaya. And this is a world monument, a UNESCO World Heritage Monument, and I would strongly recommend any of you who ever have the opportunity to visit it and see it. Uh, it is uh, quite uh, quite a remarkable uh, survival. These are the wood blocks. Uh, they're carved on both sides. Um, they are uh, 3.5 kilos in weight each, and taken as an ensemble, there are over 52 million Chinese characters carved upon them without a single mistake. And they are a testament to the devotion to Buddhism which swept Korea. Um, during the period from about the 8th century AD through to the time of the Mongol invasions in the 13th century. Uh, the whole history of this set of woodblocks is like, uh, like a romance or an adventure thriller. Uh, the, the stories of the saving of the, of the blocks from being burned, their being hidden and then being moved away into this mountain fastness uh, really could make Quite uh, an exciting uh, film. And here is a single sheet of uh, Buddhist text printed from these blocks. And again, I have a facsimile to show you later on. Uh, this set of Buddhist scriptures was the second time that the whole Buddhist canon was printed on wood blocks in Korea. The first lot was lost during the invasions of the country. The second time around it was better and they have survived until modern times. I couldn't leave the topic of Buddhism and books in Korea without uh, mentioning a bit about manuscripts as well. Um, I've only talked now about printing, but Korea is also a land of a very accomplished manuscript tradition, and manuscripts would be produced using very fine brushes on uh, particular particular kinds of paper, and one could talk for a long time about the relationship between painting and manuscript and, and writing, painting and calligraphy, but we'll just quickly mention uh, this set of amazing, uh, rather tiny manuscripts. This is only about, I think it's about maybe 17, 18 centimeters in height. You see it's in concertina format, and you see that the first two uh, leaves you see there are frontispiece, and then there's a text coming. This is uh, a, a Buddhist text, which is in the collection of the British Museum. It's a sutra devoted to the Buddha Amitabha, and it's dated, although you can't see the date on that uh, on that slide, to 1341. There were uh, there was a scriptorium, there was a, a royal copying room, which uh, produced manuscripts in considerable numbers for king and courtiers, and again this was driven by the, pra- the belief that if you paid money and uh, instructed a scribe to make a Buddhist text for the benefit of the soul of somebody you loved, you would be doing a good thing and bringing merit to yourself and to that person. So many, many times these uh, Buddhist texts have a few lines at the end Explaining for whom they've been copied and who, whose idea it was. Sometimes even naming the copyists or the person uh, who had commissioned it. So this, as you notice, is a blue manuscript, and these um, these sorts of uh, these sorts of manuscripts are on very fine indigo dyed paper, and. Korean art has a great uh, preponderance of contrasting material uh, objects, both in um, mother-of-pearl inlaid into dark lacquer and in coloured clays inlaid into ceramics. Koreans are very fond of contrast and brightness and this kind of dramatic difference in colours in the work of art and so this kind of manuscript tradition is very strong in Korea, but also found in in neighboring countries. Um, My final uh, piece of um, Korean literature about Buddhism is a most uh, touching and astonishing work called The Sutra of the Profound Kindness of Parents. Now, Korea is a place where Buddhism and Confucianism come together. And Confucian values very much emphasise children's debt to their parents and the needs for society to be ordered in a hierarchy where each of us knows our place and uh, the son is loyal and obedient to the father just as the minister is loyal and obedient to the king. So uh, in order to bring in these ideas, which were foreign to Korea and came from China, uh, popular books were published like this one. And you'll see that there's both Chinese script and the local Hangul script. And that local script, the Hangul alphabet that I was talking about, that was designed for use by ordinary people. It was explicitly and deliberately intended for people who were sort of semi-literate, not going to rise to great office, not going to be members of great families, but who needed to be able to change their ways, learn how to behave properly, and so on. So the ordinary ordinary people had books like this uh, published and helped along their way by including the local syllabary in it. So what you can see here is um, an apocryphal Buddhist sutra The the original Buddhist canon does not contain this work. It pops up in China and then becomes very, very popular in Korea, because it's a kind of syncretic effort bringing together uh, Confucianism and Buddhism. And you can see here, I think, a mother washing a baby here, on this side, and on this side you can see a sad mother watching her child go off with an umbrella. So this shows the great kindness and, and uh, support that parents give to their children, because the mother is so upset to see her child go away. <laughs> now, moving away from Buddhist books, um, I want just to talk a moment about the idea of the So On, the private academy, and these were centres of learning that were established around the country in the dynasty after the great Buddhist dynasty. The great Buddhist dynasty is known as Koryo and goes from 918 to 1392. The succeeding dynasty is known as Joseon and goes from 1392 up until the 20th century. And during that, that later d- dynasty, the Joseon dynasty, um, the, the noble families would educate their sons in places like this, scattered around the country, led by a philosopher or a teacher, and uh, devoting themselves to the studies of the classics of Confucius. Confucian classics uh, were also very much studied by ministers and officials at court, and the need for good editions of these books played an important part in the print history, the publishing history of Korea. Here we can see a 15th century text, which I think you'll agree is much more readable, elegant and well-designed than the books we looked at earlier, and this is produced using metal-movable types in the time of the great uh, 15th century king, King Sejong, who ruled from 1418 to 1450. And we know from the historic record that Sejong took a close personal interest in the technology of making these books. Uh, There are uh, records from the court annals of the king uh, inquiring about how the production of these books was coming along, uh, making sure that they were uh, finding ways of doing it efficiently, and they moved from um, settling the individual pieces of type with beeswax to wedging them in with cloth and they find better results. All of this is detailed uh, very clearly and practically in the uh, court records of the time. And this king, King Sejong, is the person who actually invented the Korean script, the Hanwhill script. And here is the book uh, whose title is The Correct Signs to Educate the People, uh, which Promulgated, which announced this alphabet and explained why it was needed. It's a fantastic um, script and I think it gives you just a little bit of uh, understanding if you look at where my pointer is at that right angle sign. That's the Korean letter K. And the script actually mimics the movement of your uh, articulatory organs in your mouth as you make the sounds. So K is... A tongue against the hard palate at the top of your mouth, and uh, later on you can see down here, ma, which is the bilabial sound, and the the symbol invented for it uh, has uh, sort of imitating uh, an imitating feature. So the the Hangul alphabet again is one of Korea's great uh, claims to fame. I think. I may be wrong, but I think Korea is the only country in the world that has an alphabet day, and they have a national holiday to um, celebrate the anniversary of its promulgation. And here's another uh, moral tale, which is for ordinary people to improve themselves, and yet again, here we see a lady who is, uh, uh, she's first of all cutting ice, and then generally looking after her parents, she's being very devoted to her parents, The text is given once in Chinese and then in the upper margins in Hangul. So books for common people, books to kind of promote uh, correct behaviour, get uh, the treatment in the local script. And um, finally, I'm now stopping, but modern Korea is uh, alive with excitement about print history. And this year in the city of Jeonju. Uh, they made this extraordinary structure, this huge building and festival, in order to tell the world about how innovative and ingenious uh, Korean people of the past were. And it may not look like it, but these um, squares are blown-up character pieces which have been uh, used architecturally. So, just to finish up, I'd like to say that um, in in Korea a complex legacy of Buddhist, Confucian and other codes has been inherited in modern times. Uh, We've looked in these slides at Heinsa, at the uh, UNESCO-listed temple in the South. We've looked at Buddhist uh, printing as a treasure of world civilization. Today, South Korea is also a leader in digital networking, and Korea is a country that understands Books, ideas, and how to circulate and study them. The things I've shown you tonight refer to the period between 750 AD and about 1700, really almost a millennium. All of the books I've shown you use local materials, paper mulberry trees, birch wood for blocks, charcoal for ink, bronze and other metals to make cast types. In ingenious ways, making books of many different kinds and qualities as the economy required. Our world is becoming more and more globalised and I think that East and West need to respect and understand each other's book histories more deeply. I hope that uh, listening to a few words about Korea's achievements in book history may be part of this process. Thank you. Should. I'd be happy to, if there are any. Dorothy. Yes, yeah. Um, you, you did mention that uh, wood blocks or metal cast uh, blocks were used, uh, both types were used. Mm-hmm. Uh, were the metal types mostly exclusively? Or were the caps of the block as well? Uh, they were lined up, I should have a slide of that, and I, I'm afraid I don't, but they were lined up in a tree. Okay. Yeah. And it was a difficult matter to get them to be um, even and flat and properly aligned. And um, we can read in the records about how hard it was, and yeah, they, they did eventually conquer it and, and design type type. I think you call them fangs, do you? With a with an all-shaped bottom so that they could be squashed down and wedged into place. So so regarding the uh, earliest one, the one found underneath the uh border, yeah. border and I know they relate to also the earliest chats found in Japan. Yeah. the Hakuman or Dara. Yes. So there there have been um, theories as whether the Japanese one were printed from woodblock or yeah. metal blocks. Yes. So what about the Korean one? The Korean one. Well, this is a little. Um, this is a little facsimile of it. Um, the examination of the surface of the of, of the text leads you to leads you to be pretty sure that it's printed from woodblock mm-hmm. rather than the me- in Japan the um, the the emperor. I call them the emperor. The short, 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 they are quite—they're quite short, and um, they're not—they're just not as substantial as this. And this they're also—this really is this is really long, yeah. Um, we will look at it in a minute. But um, I should say that this has been the subject of some controversy between Korea and China, with some Chinese scholars asserting that it's impossible that this would be published. This could be printed in Korea, and it must have been printed in China and moved to Korea. But the, it becomes very difficult to be uh, objective about these things, but I believe that examination of the historical legacy of 8th century Korea would demonstrate that this kind of technology was entirely within their reach and that um, the paper, as far as one can see, Resembles Korean paper, which I haven't talked much about, but Korean paper is quite distinctive, and was well known in East Asia for its particularly for its long fibres and for the practice of hammering it to produce a a very smooth surface. And so, Korean paper often is is thought to be denser than uh, paper from from neighbouring countries. And of course, it exists in quite a wide variety of materials. So it's, you know, it's in a lecture like this, it's very hard to generalize, generalize accurately. But it definitely has long, wispy fibers, which give it great tensile strength. Yes? Yes, I was wondering, uh, you know, when you compare uh, print history uh, of Korea and,
0: let's say, Germany. I think that uh, maybe uh,
1: Germany's print tradition took off in a phenomenal way because their focus was on the masses rather than the elites, whereas the Korean tradition was more exclusive, mm. focused on the elites rather than the masses. Mm. I, ha- I have um, struggled over this for many years because I think. Um, At first, when you look at technological innovation, you somehow expect the new technology to replace the old technology because it must be better. And so you think, well, movable type is somehow an advance on woodblock printing. But in the Korean Korean context, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that both woodblocks and movable types were useful for, for different purposes. The wood blocks were uh, cumbersome and heavy and needed to be stored and were, uh, in the East Asian tradition, valued because they preserved the text for posterity. Once carved, the text is there and can't be changed. And in the East Asian tradition, I think that's extremely important the correctness and the, um, the reliability of the text. The movable type episode in Korea, in, in my way of thinking about it, is connected with the Mongol invasions, when everything was turned upside down and uh, normal business didn't go on, the country was laid waste to. So they had very good metal workers. They knew how to cast coins. They knew how to cast bronze bells and symbols and gongs and they, they had very fine metal workers so they just turned their hand to making metal types um and that they, they did that for books they needed in small quantities and they did it during the period of the mongol invasions but once that period passed they didn't do it they didn't use metal movable types consistently in the future the great period of metal-movable types was in the early Chosong period, and that was really for court use, court reference use. And then around the country, for books produced in larger numbers, the woodblocks kept going. But the the other part of your question is about uh, books for the elite and books for common people. And um, I think in Korea there were books for common people, but they were special kinds of books, they were books to teach people basic literacy, and books to um, books for practical purposes, and then these kind of moral books that I was showing, like books that teach you how to be a filial son, or books that teach you how to um, I don't know how to give give examples of meritorious conduct, but. The idea of universal literacy didn't really have much currency in early Korea. I don't think anybody in pre-modern times would have considered that a particularly desirable thing, because Korean society was very stratified, and there was the elite, and then there were um, at the bottom, there were the base people, and in between there were merchants and farmers. But the, the, the idea of being born into a social situation, and remaining in that social situation throughout your life was was accepted as a as fate. Yeah. Michael.
0: since you're a, a museum deputy director and a curator, um, what do you think about the the wisdom of repatriating the, the, this, this absolutely crucial document mm-hmm. from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France back to Seoul?
1: Mm, well, um, well, with my museum director's hat on, I suppose I would say um, the collections that a museum owns are legally its own. And it's for the museum to decide whether or not it would like to deaccession them. In the case of France, they have their own laws and structure, so it's it's a decision that they must make. And in fact, the French have repatriated a big group of court manuscripts which were were brought to France during a punitive raid on Korea in the mid-19th century and they are now in the National Museum of Korea, and they've been displayed and so on. So it can happen, but uh, what what do I think? I think in some cases, the great universal museums of of the earlier times need to be more alive to the emotions of the countries of production of some of their collections. But... It's a very, very charged question, because if you were to begin repatriation of objects on grounds of... I don't know, on grounds of national sentiment, then, you know, maybe you'd have to send the Elgin marbles back to Greece, you'd have to send all the Benin bronzes back to Africa. And I think the fact that these questions arouse such powerful feelings on both sides of the debate... Show, just show, to me, it demonstrates that there is not a right answer to, the que- to this question. I think the best outcomes are ones which are done by mutual consent and I don't know if the French authorities have had a request for that to go back. But one thing is for sure, it matters more to Koreans than it does to French people. You know, the number of people in France were capable of reading that and understanding its meaning is very small. But the French um, cultural realm takes its responsibility very, very, very seriously. And their idea of patrimony includes the French experience around the world. And so, you know, I, I feel uneasy about saying that they ought to send it back. <laughs> yes? Um, many of the texts that we look yeah. I'm wondering at what point, if there is such a point, that the Chinese was no longer included. No, there is not such a point. Chinese just goes on and on and on. I think it's to do with the, the power and the prestige of the Chinese language. Um, Hangul was kind of thought of as something for for lower people and women. You know, when, when, Hangul was okay for women, but... you know. For real people and prestigious people, Chinese characters were the best.
0: <laughs> but if, if I may, before uh, we leave, I want to give you a little commercial announcement, and that is that Beth McKillop will be giving the Whedon Lecture, co-sponsored by the Fraylin Museum and the East Asia Center, um, on Thursday, the 17th of November at 6 p.m., in Campbell 153. I'm happy to give anybody these details one-on-one. Um, at 6 p.m. in Campbell 153, and she will be speaking there on Korean ceramics. We have some facsimiles to look at and then there is a reception to which all are invited in Alderman first floor in the Rare Book School suite and you would all be most welcome to attend that but not before we thank our speakers. Thank <laughs> you.